You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my lovely other half, Dr. Jess. How are you? I'm all right. How about you? I'm good. I'm okay. I'm okay. Before we continue, I want to take a moment to say thank you to our ongoing podcast supporter, Let's Get Checked, and encourage you to check them out at letsgetchecked.com. They offer at-home testing for everything from STIs to thyroid, liver, colon, sexual health, iron, vitamin tests. You order the sample online, they mail it to you, and then you provide the sample back via mail and check your results securely online. So do check them out and please use code Dr. Jess at checkout to let them know that you heard about them here. Today we're going to be talking about attachment styles with an old friend of mine, really excited to welcome her in just a moment. But before we do, I want to get to one of your questions. I'm trying to commit to getting to at least one or two questions every episode because they're piling up and this is a nice, easy one. This person has a question about riding. Riding what? Riding uh, the Dixical. <laughs> Should have known, like riding a bike or no. like how does that relate to relationships? The dixical. So they're just asking for some techniques. They said they're afraid to get on top. I mean, there's a lot to say about this. And I do have some previous episodes about riding that you can check out. But I mean, ultimately, when it comes to getting on top, just do what feels good for you. Don't emulate what you see in porn. Just move your a body in a way that produces pleasure. So rather than focusing on how you look, tune in to how you feel. And they, they also ask some questions about how to get on top. But honestly, again, there's no right way to climb on top. Just you, you can hold your hands above their head while you mount them, or you can roll over and climb on board, or you can squat down on top of them. Uh, they also ask the question, where do you put your hands? And again, whatever feels most comfortable for your body. You know, you could put your hands on their shoulders, on the bed, in the air, wave them around like you just don't care. Uh, it could be on your own hips, along their hips, against their ankles if you're facing down. Could you and, Ricky Bobby your hands? Oh, just let them float into the air? just let them float into the air? If that's your jam, honestly, go for it. And in, in terms of techniques because they're looking for specific techniques. I, I pulled some from an article or maybe from a, a book that I had written a long time ago. I mean, basically, you've got the classic where you just bounce up and down from base to tip. Or you've got the cat curl where you you get on all fours. And if you're facing their face, you put your palms next to their shoulders and you just kind of arch your back like a cat to curl your hips backwards in a semicircle. Or you can turn around and face their feet and do the exact same thing. You're on all fours and you curl and roll your hips. Uh, if you prefer, you can sit up straight and roll your hips to trace a large circle with kind of the bottom half along their body and the upper half up in the air. So again, it's kind of just a rolling movement of the hips. Um, you can sit all the way down and rock instead of rolling, just rock your your hips like you're on a rocking horse back and forth. That can feel good if you, if you have a clitoris. You can be rubbing your clitoris. Uh, you might squat over them and kind of let them watch as they kind of slide 
in and out. And again, you could be facing them. You could be giving them a rear view or giving yourself a view of your their feet if that's where you're into. You could be approaching from the side. You could get an, into a kneeling position and lean all the way back or lean all the way forward. You could be in a tabletop position. Uh, so you just kind of get on all fours so that you can whisper in their ear. Um, you could do a quick change where you kind of alternate between I don't know, five to 10 shallow pumps and then five to 10 deeper ones, a kind of pressing yourself in and out, in and out, away and back toward them. Uh, you can also alternate with speed. So you go really, really slowly for a minute and then you speed it up and then you go slowly and then you speed it up. So, so many options when it comes to riding. And I'm always reticent to give these specific techniques because I just want to remind you that it's not a prescription. They're not a perfect formula. Really, if you just play with what works for you, you're, you're probably going to uh, enjoy it more than following exactly what I've said. But don't be afraid of being on top because it gives you the ability to control the depth and the angle and the speed and the rhythm and the movements. And you can kind of play with exhibitionism with your body in full view. But again, please enjoy the feelings instead of worrying about what your partner is thinking. I think many of us are intimidated by riding, especially in the light of day, because we're worried about, you know, maybe what we look like or what our partner's thinking or what they're feeling. But if we could just tune out of that and tune into our own pleasure, I think we'll all be better off. Yeah, I'm sure that your partner is probably just enjoying whatever it is you're doing. So I know as the recipient, that's what I feel. I'm just, I'm not, I'm just focused on you and how good it feels. And everything else is just a byproduct. We're definitely our own worst critic. And this was kind of a longer question about writing. So I hope you feel a little bit motivated or at least a little bit more confident to try some of these things out, knowing that whatever you do, it's not the last time you're going to have sex. So if you don't like it this time, you'll find something else you like next time or the next time. Now, changing gears, it's time to talk about attachment styles. Joining us today is Dr. Gina DiGiulio, a clinical psychologist, CEO, and founder of Pathwell Clinic in Toronto, and a friend of mine. Nice to see you from afar. Likewise, Dr. Jess. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. How about you? Same. You know, one, one day at a time. We're, you know, we're, we're in Toronto, so we are now in lockdown again. Uh, for the next 27 days, but who's counting, you know? So we're taking it one day at a time. <laughs> so are you seeing patients virtually as well? Yes, um, in person as well. So mental health, at least where I practice in Ontario, has been deemed an essential service, which means I can see um, clients in person, and some people just prefer that. Uh, but I am primarily seeing clients virtually. Um, which is nice because a lot of clients now, as you know, are working from home. Uh, so that doesn't sort of get in the way of, you know, them doing therapy. I can sort of talk to them from kind of anyhow, anywhere now. So I'm probably seeing about 70% or so of my clients virtually and about 30 in person. Okay. And are you seeing anything pop up or any themes since the onset of COVID? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so anxiety is, I'd say, sort of the number one presentation that I'm seeing. And, you know, that's true where, uh, you know, people maybe were experiencing anxiety pre-pandemic and now it's just been exacerbated. But I'm also seeing a lot of new anxiety and people who you know, don't have any history of it are now quite fearful and anxious, not necessarily you know, about the, the virus itself or contracting it. I mean, there's there's some of that, but really the anxiety relates more to um, just the unknown, right? And the uncertainty of this all and what this means for them, right? Personally, professionally, right? Financially. Um, uncertainty is a hard thing for people to deal with, right? And uh, we've never, you know, been in, I think, a more uncertain time as of now. So this is triggering a lot of anxiety. And what I'm seeing now, because we're now in month, you know, nine-ish, 10 of this pandemic, um, I'm now starting to see depression that's uh, now have emanated, right, from the consequences of, you know, lockdowns and the various restrictions that we've been under. Um, so, you know, we were kind of talking earlier on, it's been a busy time, not, not just for me, for all of my colleagues in mental health. Um, I've never seen anything like this in my career. Certainly, I've never been uh, this busy. So a lot of people are having a hard time with everything that's happening. Yeah, that makes sense. And I got to ask, are you seeing a lot of anger or rage uh, attached to that anxiety? Because I'm noticing with me that I'm just snappier than ever. Uh, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it rage necessarily, but I just like every little thing irritates me when it didn't used to. And one thing that I, I had kind of a discovery this week, Doc. <laughs> I, I was thinking I was thinking about kind of my frustration and and my anxiety. I'm I would say I'm a very low anxiety person normally. And I actually love stress and I really enjoy risk. And that's part of why I've kind of designed maybe subconsciously or maybe purposely my work the way I have, right? Flying all the time. You know, maybe you miss the flight. Maybe you make it in time. Maybe you don't. Those are the types of things that many people find distressful, but I actually take comfort in it. And I realized just last week that even though I'm still doing my work, in many ways, I've I've lost my job because my job really entailed travel every traveling every week and working with groups in person. And I'm lucky that I'm still getting to do some work online. But there is a real sense of loss to you know the, the lifestyle that I was accustomed to living. That again, I know most people wouldn't want to live that lifestyle, right? Sometimes people say, "Oh, can you pack me in your bag?" And I'm like, "You would not want to do what I'm doing." <laughs> No, I know it sort of is for you. You're a little bit like me. Um, you like to bounce around. So, so I made it all about me. Let's let's talk about let's talk about frustration and anger. Are you seeing a lot of that? Yeah. Well, I mean, frustration, you know, slash anger, irritability, right? Those are all or can be manifestations of both anxiety and depression. And you know, in a, in a case such as yourself, where you were really um, uh, you know, you designed right, your professional, I guess, you know, personal, but also professional lifestyle to the degree that you wanted it, right? You had agency and ownership of that. And what this pandemic has done is essentially, you know, taken that away, right? And for people who, you know, are very independent, are, um, you know, uh, yeah, are independent spirits, this pandemic has been hard to deal with because it's made them feel out of control, right? Something was taken away from them 
rather quickly and there's this feeling that they can't really do much about it and that for sure can trigger irritability anger um in many people right but especially people with that very sort of self-sufficient independent spirit yeah you know something that came up with my therapist uh has to do with how travel creates chemicals that I tend to be low in. So she talked a little bit to me about, you know, having ADHD and being one of those people that bounces around and how my job or my, I mean, it's not a job, my business allows me to naturally cope because the intensity and the back-to-back scheduling of travel help to create some of those chemicals, right, that I might be naturally low in. So she, she was saying it's almost like medicine, right? So many people with different diagnoses have different coping mechanisms. Some people will take meds, but for other people, it has to do with lifestyle changes. So I don't know, do you see many clients with ADHD and how they're coping during the pandemic? I come from the corporate world, so a lot of my clients are executives um, or entrepreneurs, right? And naturally, they tend to be uh, more, you know, greater risk takers, like you were saying before. Uh, they tend to be, uh, you know, thrive on on good stress and look, they're, they're not risk averse, right? And that actually, those situations that, you know, maybe are a bit risky or exciting, that, that fuels them, right? Um, it's a known fact that a lot of entrepreneurs um, are in fact, right, have ADHD. And it's, it's like you said, they look for situations that maybe people would find risky or the average, say, average person would find risky as a means of fueling a need, right? Sometimes there's this belief that uh, people with, say, ADHD are overstimulated and that's not actually the case, right? It's exactly what you said. They have certain neurotransmitters that are associated with reward, um, pleasure, right? Feeling good that are actually lower than, say, the average person has. And so they need to look for these exciting, you know, thrill-seeking situations in order to give themselves that natural boost of those feel-good neurochemicals that they don't have enough of. Exactly. And now for many of us, that's that's missing. So we're really, really struggling with it. Um, now, do you deal with, so if you're dealing with so many, let's say, entrepreneurs who uh, perhaps are diagnosed with ADHD or have tendencies along those lines, what do you see in relationships? And I know we're going to start talking about uh, attachment theory and the attachment styles in just a moment, but I do receive quite a few questions about ADHD. And we did one podcast interview uh, on ADHD and relationships and sex, but do you see patterns arise and is there anything we can do, uh, you know, asking for a friend to be better partners? <laughs> Um, for sure. So, you know, people who, again, are more of that type A, um, you know, risk averse, we'll call them thrill-seeking, ADHD. Um, what we tend to see in terms of patterns is in relationships is, you know, these are folks, again, who seek stimulation and excitement, right? And especially now in this pandemic when, you know, ways in which they feed that sense or that need for excitement has been taken away, um, uh, this can lead to right, irritability, anger that's manifested in their primary relationships, right? So we see that frustration. They have all this extra kind of pent up energy and they don't know where to place it or there's nowhere really in the 
you know, a healthy outlet to place it on. Um, we tend to sometimes see in relationships, you know, thrill-seeking behavior. So maybe these folks, again, this is a blanket statement, but we tend to see perhaps increased rates of um, cheating or infidelity uh, as a means of, again, seeking that external excitement, right? They might become uh, more easily bored say with their partner, right? And so they need that external stimulation in order to sort of keep themselves, you know, excited and know that they're also exciting to other people. Um, you know, rates of, as you probably well know for sure, rates of um, separation, and now we're even seeing sort of divorce because we have some longer term data now from, you know, um, about a year's data now out from when this pandemic started, we're seeing uh, increased rates in both, right? Separations and divorce. And um, separations and divorces tend to be higher with people who have, again, ADHD or more of this thrill-seeking type A type of behavior. And I'm certainly seeing that in my practice now. So increased relationship problems in these folks, for sure. You know, you said something about not just having their own excitement fulfilled, and this applies to all people, but wanting to seem exciting to somebody else. And that really resonates with me and I think with so many people. So yes, you want your partner to you know, be attracted to you and be interested in you, but of course it can be more exciting when somebody else is interested in you. And I think that, listen, if you have a tendency, if you're naturally inclined towards something, being aware of it and being able to name it means that you can address it in a way that works for you, works for your relationship, isn't perhaps destructive to the relationship. So I know, for example, that I am bored so easily, like so easily. You know, I, when I used to work on this show, I think we shot, say, 10 episodes over the course of a month. By the fourth episode, I was like, this again? Are we really going to do this again? Even though it was always a new story, I just get bored really easily. I'm not complaining about that show, but Brandon knows this about me. Yes, I do. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned irritability, irritability as one of the items because speaking about myself, I've been very irritable. And, it, and what's really interesting was that you mentioned s some types of people are seeking thrill and, you know, that, that they've lost some control. And, and I've always felt like I'm on the other end of that spectrum where I've always wanted control. Uh, it's what actually I have found, and it, I'm not saying it's an effective way of doing things, but just of easing my own anxiety. It's like I feel like I'm in control, and letting go of it is something that I have a difficulty. I have difficulty with. So right now, in the midst of this, I feel like I have less control. Like that's my concern, and that's what's driving all this anxiety for me. Is that it? You know, like when you walk out the door, and listen, I'm still going and running my business and I'm still going out and being careful and masking up and doing what I need to do. But there's this overriding concern of, you know, what if, right? Like what if you get sick and it's, it's been difficult, but that irritability element, I have found very much in this, in this relationship, like me personally, I just get irritated and we've been together now. I mean, Jess and I have been, we've been together almost two decades and love her to death. There's nothing I wouldn't do for her. And through this entire pandemic, I mean, we've never spent eight plus months together every single day. And I don't feel like I'm tired of you in any way, but I could see how if this were to go on for another eight months to the degree that we currently have it with no 
definitive end in sight, how it might be, it would just get, it would be harder. Like it's, it's harder when you're always with the same person. You're not able to do some of the fun things that you did before. I got to ask, I would, what do you, what do I do to irritate you? No, seriously, because I yeah, would like. I'm trying to think because we the talked things... about this early in the pandemic. I was like, "Am I doing anything to irritate you?" <laughs> but I haven't checked. Well, first of all, you're a lot more patient than me. Uh, like, there's no denying that. <laughs> with me, at least, you're more patient with me than I am with you. Like, er- little things irritate me very easily. Like, I'm the type of person that you know, you leave a wrapper on the counter. I'm like, "Why is there a wrapper on the counter?" I may not yeah. say it out loud, but it's happening in my head and in my heart. <laughs> you know, the, the, and I'm not making excuses. There aren't a lot of things that I think you do that irritate me. There are certain things that I've been trying to do to reflect on my own behavior, which have kind of mitigated some of that irritability that I have with maybe things that you've done. So anyway, going back to things you do that bug me. Okay. I'm like, you don't ever clean the shower after you take a shower. <laughs> like she will go out of her way to make sure that she's the first one to take a shower uh, just because the sequence of events is then I go and then I squeegee. We have a frameless glass shower and I squeegee everything down. And I'm a, a little bit um, specific about how I like things not to get dirty. Brandon, so, I feel like this is the third time I've heard this in one of your podcasts. So I know this. Okay, <laughs> is, it, is it the glass shower? But, but like, so, but, but. But, but but let me but let me and more importantly if Gina's heard it three times oh, and man. I feel like I'm hearing it for the first time the real Jeez. issue is me not listening well that's what I was thinking I'm like <laughs> I must have said this a bunch and not even realized right but when Jess is away you know and she's flying all over the world right you're not seeing as much of that right so the little things that our partners do that annoy us uh, we're around them now 24 7 and that's going to build irritability and frustration in anyone doesn't matter who you are Right. So what you said earlier is also that, uh, you know, the issue of feeling out of control. Um, And that's that's hard again for for many people, but especially people with anxiety who, you know, one of their primary means of coping with their anxiety is, of course, wanting to control everything. Right. It's a false sense of control because, of course, we don't have control over everything, but it's a, a sense of control that they have nonetheless when, you know, they try and sort of cover all their bases, um, try and predict or think about for everything that can go wrong and, you know, do whatever they need to do to prevent those things. Well, all of that, right, those false control mechanisms have also been taken away in this pandemic, right? So what does that lead to? Exacerbated anxiety, frustration, anger, depression, right, et cetera. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you in this false sense of control. And I think, you know, you believe that you can control el- every element and you can't. And, and, you know, I've learned that through my business. It's like you take every possible step that you can and it doesn't always work out. But one thing that somebody, uh, a, f- a friend of mine said to me years ago was these little things that you do get irritated about. It's like, just remember that one day you will reflect back and want to do them. Like the things that you perceive as being a chore. Like, for instance, last night, just it was like 10 o'clock at night, which I know isn't that late, but it's late now during a pandemic. Just I know that you wanted me to make you popcorn late at night and I don't <laughs> pop it in the microwave. I make it on the stovetop and do he all this thing. Really I do good make popcorn. pretty amazing popcorn. Yeah, it's not very healthy. But the point is, is that last night I knew that you wanted that. I knew that it, it was an inconvenience, if you will, because of course I wanted to relax and just, you know, wind down. But I remembered that, you know, if you weren't here, 
I would want to do that. Like, mm. I would want to make you popcorn. Is that why you did it? Because I didn't want to ask you last night. No, and, you I, and I was tired. just like, you know what? I need to do this. So a friend of mine years ago was like, the things that you perceive to being chores, yeah, they're chores, but there will be a day that if you couldn't do this, that's all you'd want to do is to do this chore for someone. And I remember thinking that with our dog. I was like, you know, it's raining, it's two degrees, it's a terrible day. I'm waiting for my dog to go to the washroom outside. This stinks. And I was like, you know, one day she's not gonna be here and that's what I'm gonna wanna do. So I take those chores and turn them into things that hopefully can be, um, you know, I, I just reframe them. That's but you, I mean. The language of that is like, oh, I have to take the dog for the walk versus I get to take the dog for the walk. Like I'd do anything right now to get to take my dog for a walk, but I can't do that ever again. And, and you, you were so sweet making me that. When you brought up the popcorn, I was so excited. I squealed. I actually didn't know if you were being facetious, like sarcastic. And I was you're like, oh, you made me popcorn. And I'm like, come on, you must have heard me make popcorn. No, I didn't <laughs> hear like... you. Uh, so we tricked Dr. Gina into therapizing us. <laughs> but I do want to talk to you about attachment styles and attachment theory because that's something we haven't covered on the podcast. Um, so could you give us a, a rundown of what in attachment theory entails? Sure. So attachment theory um, stipulates that how we attach to other adults strongly corresponds to how we attach to others, especially our primary caregivers in infancy. Okay, so it goes back to that early in the, the first year or two of life, how we attach to our primary caregivers or caregivers will dictate and greatly influence how we relate to others as adults, especially in romantic relationships. Um, so, you know, how we to communicate with others, um, whether or not we trust people, um, how vulnerable we're willing to be in relationships, um, how we respond to interpersonal conflict, um, our expectations of our partners, right? All of these things can be greatly influenced by the lessons that we learned and how we attach to our primary caregivers in the very early stages of our lives. And you say there are three dimensions that tend to underlie attachment styles. Right. So three um, dimensions and where we lie on these three dimensions will characterize uh, the type of attachment style that we have. And they are closeness, dependency and anxiety. Okay, so closeness, um, how comfortable we feel, you know, being emotionally close and intimate and vulnerable with other people. Um, uh, dependency, so the degree to which we think that um, it is safe to rely on our, uh, our partners or other people, and vice versa, the degree to which we're comfortable with others or our partners relying on us. And then lastly, anxiety, you know, the extent to which we worry about our partners leaving us or abandonment. So again, where we lie on these three dimensions, right, and they're not so categorical, they really do run along a spectrum, um, will define and characterize the type of attachment style that we have. And they divide the attachment styles into four categories. Yeah. So the four attachment styles are secure, 
anxious, avoidant, and disorganized. Now I can sort of take you through a run through of, of each of the four. Okay, so secure attachment. So this is the healthiest type of attachment. Um, these folks are low on interpersonal avoidance. So in other words, they don't avoid relationships and they're low on anxiety. So in other words, they're not insecure in relationships. They're really comfortable, right, on that dependency dimension. They're really comfortable relying on other people, on their partners, and vice versa. They're also really comfortable with their partners needing them, right? They don't feel um, smothered by that at all. Uh, they trust that their partner is going to be around, so they don't worry that their partner is going to leave them, right? They don't worry about being abandoned or rejected by their partner. Um, they trust that their partner can have their own independent lives, right? And they're not threatened by that at all. They have a really healthy dose of self-esteem. Uh, they're really comfortable with closeness. These folks are really good in terms of navigating interpersonal conflict. Uh, so they're really good, in other words, with, um, uh, you know, relaying their needs and wants to their partner and vice versa, empathizing with their uh, partner's needs and wants and really sort of understanding that and not being sort of threatened by that, if, especially if they differ from theirs. They're really empathic um, and they really know how to regulate their emotions well. Okay, so secure attachment. Again, the healthiest type of attachment of the four. Okay, the second one is known as anxious attachment, sometimes called ambivalent attachment. So these folks are also low on interpersonal avoidance. So in other words, they don't, um, similarly, they don't um, avoid relationships, but they're high on anxiety, okay? meaning they're very insecure in relationships. So they worry about being rejected or abandoned by their partner. They're fearful, uh, and they sometimes then react by becoming really needy or clingy, um, uh, you know, to their partner because they're worried about them leaving. They worry that they're not good enough for their partner. They tend to be really sensitive to their partner's mood. So, you know, if their partner comes home one day and you know the partner's really angry or upset, they tend to. Uh, internalize that, personalize it, and make it about them, right? And accept responsibility for their partner's moods and behaviors. Um, they can be uh, really quite a demanding. They have really high expectations of their partners. Um, they sometimes can scare partners away because of this. They just be, you know, too much. Uh, and they don't regulate their emotions well. So they can be quite, you know, moody or argumentative. It, those are, that tends to be um, an expression of, of their anxiety and they don't tend to have good interpersonal boundaries. Okay, so that's the anxious attachment. Third is the avoidant attachment, sometimes called dismissive. So these folks, as compared to the previous two attachment styles, they're high on interpersonal avoidance. In other words, they don't want to be in relationships, okay? If they are, they, they avoid the intimacy in a relationship. They're not comfortable with intimacy at all. And they're low on anxiety. They don't feel insecure because they don't really care all that much, right, about forming intimate bonds. So the idea is, well, you know, if they end a relationship, their partner leaves them, eh, it doesn't really upset them too much, okay? So they're very low on interpersonal anxiety. They're uncomfortable with closeness, like I said, uncomfortable with intimacy. And because of this, they tend to keep partners at an arm's length. They really value their freedom and their independence. So for them, 
intimacy, like intimacy, I mean, with a capital I, right? Not just physical intimacy, but truly intimacy in all of its uh, meanings equates to a loss of freedom for them. And this is why intimacy just scares them and terrifies them so much. Um, they're not good communicators, again, because they don't care all that much about intimacy. So they're not going to invest even in learning how to communicate effectively or put in the work that's required to sometimes do that. Um, they're often described by partners or other people as being emotionally unavailable, right? They're almost like have this stonewalled, almost stoic presentation. Um, they're really emotionally distant and can sometimes be quite uh, rejecting in relationships. Okay. And then the last one is the most unhealthy type of attachment, which is the disorganized, sometimes called the unresolved attachment style. And it's disorganized, you know, it's, it's what it sounds like. It's disorganized because it's all over the place. So we tend to see all kinds of sometimes opposing, you know, behavior and interpersonal behaviors in with this type of attachment style. So these folks are high on interpersonal avoidance. So they similarly tend to avoid um, sort of intimacy and closeness in relationships, but they're also high on anxiety, right? It's an interesting combination. You see why they're called disorganized. There's a bit of a push and pull, right? They're, uh, they avoid intimacy and yet they're fearful of being rejected or abandoned at the same time. Um, so they too react, um, with, you know, by distancing themselves uh, from other people, they're uncomfortable with intimacy and closeness. They really have difficulties trusting other people. Uh, they feel that they can't rely on others. Um, they, you know, often have a lot of um, unresolved emotions or complicated mindsets that stem from earlier traumas. And I don't mean single traumas like, you know, being in a car accident, but we often see very complex uh, chronic trauma in these folks, such as, you know, years of enduring abuse, say in childhood. Um, they uh, sort of lack empathy. They tend to be punishing in relationships. There's a general disregard for rules, which we also tend to see a lot of criminal behavior with this type of attachment style. Um, they tend to be quite punishing um, and narcissistic. And again, th this is one of the, the most unhealthy and dysfunctional attachment styles of the four. Um, attachment styles, you know, tend to be passed down generationally because right? we can also learn, right, these attachment styles in childhood, depending on what we see with our primary care, uh, caregivers. And we think about intergenerational trauma being passed down. Um, you know, when I, whenever I see models like this, uh, I always see that they can perhaps be useful, but also I think they can be uh, kind of problematic in that people will diagnose other people. Uh, you know, you hear people say, well, they, they were, uh, they're a confirmed narcissist or they're emotionally unavailable and just diagnosing people because their style or more importantly, the way you interpret their style doesn't jive with you. So I'm happy to hear from the onset that you talked about this kind of continuum and how it's not that somebody is 100% secure or 100% anxious or 100% avoidant or disorganized. Uh, you know, when I, I think about these various attachment styles, I would think that we all exhibit components of each of them. Absolutely, right? That's the, the sort of the fact of it and the reality is that we are 
all, you know, likely a combination um, of all four. And that is, you know, going to vacillate and that runs along a spectrum too. And, you know, that's going to be influenced by what's going on in our lives, uh, the, the type of, you know, where our partner is for those, of, you know, of us in relationships, where they're at in terms of their, you know, the spectrum of their attachment style and how that, like, as you said, jives or doesn't jive with us. Um, you know, it can change with, with uh, maturity, with, uh, you know, therapy. So certainly, uh, yes, we are not, you know, definitively 100% one of these four types, but rather a combination of all four, again, depending on what's happening in our lives in any given time. Right. The, the first thing that comes to mind for me is collective trauma, because, uh, you know, I, again, I think these psychological lenses can be so helpful for us to look at ourselves and kind of recognize, oh, yeah, that is in me, or I'd like to have more of that or less of that. But also, uh, you know, there are all these environmental, sociocultural factors related to our identity, related to your age, to your race, to your family background, to culture, all these different components that can, for example, make, like if you take, for example, you know, avoidant or dismissive, um, somebody who is maybe scared of being hurt. Well, I think about, for example, racial trauma and how you might, uh, how you might move into the dating world having lived a lifetime of racial trauma or somebody who, you know, is, let me see what, I'm just looking at this list, I had some notes here, you know, being fearful of being rejected. Well, again, I start to think about the values around sexual social capital and have you been told that you are worthy? Have you seen representations that remind you of yourself in popular culture or even around you to, to tell you that you are deserving of love, that you're deserving of a healthy relationship, that you're deserving of being in a committed relationship or any relationship, doesn't have to be committed. And, and from a sexual perspective, that, that you're deserving of sex. And in the absence of, uh, you know, a broader representation of people in, in whether it's pop culture or in politics or on the front page of the newspaper or in leadership, uh, I would think that all of those things can so adversely or positively affect this, you know, the way you embrace or the way you reflect these attachment styles. So I know that you must work on attachment styles with people. So if we can say that secure attachment styles make for more stable or more fulfilling relationships, how do you become more secure in your attachment style? And I should just mention that I met Dr. Gina when she was training me in cognitive behavioral therapy. So I imagine CBT is one of the tools in your arsenal. One of them, right. Uh, okay, so the good news is, you know, if the, the goal, right, or the, the holy grail of attachment is secure attachment, because uh, that you know, has been deemed the, the healthiest type of attachment style, uh, one can become securely attached anytime, at any age. So this idea that, you know, we are primarily a product of our childhood, for example, is just, is just not true. Um, you know, it's not sort of what happens to us in childhood that matters. It's, it's how we cope with it, right? And, and our behavioral response to maybe 
triggers or yeah, um, an overarching maybe mindset that was primed in childhood, but that mindset, right. And those behaviors that or manifestations of early learnings can certainly be changed, right? And one of the ways is, sure, what you said, cognitive behavior therapy, because what cognitive behavior therapy helps people to do is to change problematic or unhelpful ways of thinking, right, mindsets, and unhelpful ways of uh, behaving, again, that are responses to triggers, right, that may have, again, been created by sort of schemas that were created in childhood. Um, And CBT, which is cognitive behavior therapy for short, can be quite effective. So it's not a, you know, a panacea to sort of cure all the ills of the world. It doesn't work for everybody, but the efficacy rates are pretty high. So depending on you know, what we're treating, what type of anxiety, or whether it's depression, the efficacy rates run anywhere from about 60 to 70%. And it's also um, a short-term treatment, right? This is not uh, a treatment that you have to be in for years, right? Or forever. Very different from, you know, earlier, say, psychodynamic therapy that tends to be longer term. An average sort of course of CBT is about 12 sessions, and you can make a significant impact in terms of somebody's mindset, again, and, and changing behaviors um, in that period of time. So really, we're looking at about you know four, four months or so of therapy, uh, which is fantastic. And those gains have also been shown uh, to be maintained long term as well. So CBT uh, is one way to help people change their attachment style. Uh, Another type of therapy, which I often integrate with my CBT work, which does a really nice job of, again, helping people to move to more more, uh, secure types of attachment is EFT or emotion-focused therapy. Um, And that really is the gold standard for couples therapy has been shown to be the most effective. And that therapy really does a nice job of doing a deep dive into um, people's attachment styles. But not only that, but really looking at how each partners, if we're talking about a two partner um, couple, how each partner's attachment styles interact with one another and how that dynamic plays out and sometimes how it can play out in unhealthy manners and teaches people how to not necessarily change their attachment style per se, but to be aware of their attachment style, right? And how it's playing out with their partner's um, attachment style and how to change the typical behavioral response, right? Or the dance, say, of behavioral responses that we sometimes see being played out between couples. Um, So EFT does a really nice job of helping people to uncover that. Um, It's possible. We can all move towards a more sort of secure, you know, healthier way of attaching. Uh, We just, we have to want it, right? And we have to be willing to put in the work to get there. It's not easy work, right? It, uh, It takes time. And it sometimes can be really hard and even painful work in the short term. Um, But, you know, for longer term gain, it's absolutely possible. And so your your clinic, Pathwell, and folks can check it out at pathwell.ca, you do offer digital online sessions as well. And what I what I really like about CBT as well as EFT is that folks can take the tools and work on it 
on their own, right? So if you're talking about an average of 12 sessions, some people might use all of those. Other people might just need to check in, sort of like, you know, Brandon's going to a physio right now. The physio shows him some exercises. He doesn't need to go to physio every single time he does those exercises. And I'm glad that we're looking at therapy differently than 10, 20, 30 years ago, where people can become their own therapists. I, I always noticed that talking with one of my friends, Luna, helps me to figure out a bunch of stuff that, that I call them like therapy breakthroughs. And I have a, a list of them, you know, when I'm struggling with something. And sometimes I get them in therapy, but sometimes I just get them talking to Luna, who is, you know, quite qualified as well. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's the hallmark of you know, good, effective therapy, right, is teaching people essentially how to tap into the best therapist that they have, which is the therapist, you know, within themselves and arming them with tools that they can then use in the future uh, when needed, if they feel triggered. A success of therapy can't be predicated on somebody going to therapy every week. Uh, that's just not feasible, right? For many people. And this is also not practical. Um, I always tell people, you know, the most important work that you do in therapy is actually the work that you do outside of my session, right? I'm with people typically for about an hour, you know, an hour in somebody's week is but a mere drop in a bucket of time, right? So that hour I'm helping people to uh, maybe arrive at some insights that they haven't had before, but more importantly, help to set them up so that they can behaviorally respond to those insights differently when they walk out my door, which is the really important and meaningful work that they have to do. Right? And we know that, yes, we don't have to be in therapy regularly, by regular I mean weekly, uh, or for a very long time in order for that to happen. Nor does that inter change have to happen in person, right? We know now that um, online therapy, there's been a lot of research now um, that has looked at specifically online CBT, and it has shown that you know online CBT is just as effective as in-person CBT. There's no difference, right? They are therapeutically uh, equivalent in terms of outcomes, which is also great, right? Because again, it allows uh, maybe people who maybe don't live in, uh, say, cities where, you know, or cities period or more rural areas where there aren't very many therapists or maybe even therapists at all, right, to access that help, right? It just renders therapy more uh, easily accessible um, and with, with equal if, uh, equivalencies in terms of efficacy. So, you know, that's really exciting for me as a therapist as well. It really is. And it makes just it's so much more accessible. And I, I like that you're saying that the best therapist you have is the therapist in yourself. So if folks are struggling with attachment, maybe they're feeling, you know, high on avoidance or high on anxiety, or very fearful of rejection, or just really second guessing themselves, where can they begin right now on their own? Like, is there a question they can ask themselves? Is there a prompt they can use to reflect upon to feel more secure with a reminder that with these attachment styles, they're not permanent states of being? Um, so where can we begin right now to leave people? Right. So, you know, one thing I'd ask maybe your listeners to ask themselves is where do they lie on those you know, three dimensions that underpin attachment style? So, you know, closeness, dependency, anxiety. Right. So I would ask myself, so how comfortable am I with intimacy in relationships? Is that something that scares me or not? How comfortable am I being vulnerable 
with people, um, you know, getting close to people in the, the true sense of closeness, right? Emotionally close. Um, I would, you know, have listeners think about that. Dependency, how uh, comfortable am I relying on others? Is that something that scares me? Am I okay with it? And vice versa. How comfortable am I with other people relying on me? And then finally, anxiety, right? Am I fearful of rejection? And if so, you know, why might that be? Am I worried about people abandoning me or not, right? So I would have your listeners think about where they lie on those three dimensions of closeness, dependency, and, and anxiety, and then think about why that might be and how that might be manifesting uh, in their lives in terms of their behaviors, right? And then just choose one. You want to start, start small. Maybe you either choose the one that you think might be a bit easier to tackle, or maybe you choose the one that is interfering with your life the most, right? You're, that's for your sort of listeners to decide. But, you know, for example, if I decide, okay, well, maybe I really want to work on becoming uh, more comfortable with emotional intimacy with people. So I might then give myself some homework of trying to challenge myself on that and say, okay, well, this week I'm going to call one of my friends and I'm really going to share something personal with them. I'm going to challenge myself to, you know, knock down these emotional walls that I keep to defend myself and really share something other than, hey, you know, the weather, what are you up to? Something that's much more, uh, more meaningful and try that on for size and see how that works, right? So that's something that you can start with right away uh, today and it doesn't require a therapist, right? Or much work. It doesn't cost anything, right? I love that. I love that you're giving really specific, really manageable stuff, right? It's not like I'm going to open up to everyone and I'm going to be vulnerable with everyone in my life. I'm just going to make one phone call and put myself out there in this one way. Uh, really, really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. Uh, we are we are friends, and I'm so thankful for that. But sometimes I wish we wouldn't weren't because then you could be my therapist, <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa. <laughs> Folks, you can learn more about Dr. Gina DiGiulio at pathwell.ca. Follow them on Instagram at Pathwell Clinic. And they're on all social media, in fact, on Pathwell Clinic. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thank you for having me. It was great fun. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate this discussion. And I appreciate the expertise Dr. Gina brings, but also the, the nuance. And so I would encourage people to keep exploring the attachment styles but please 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 do not be hard on yourself and don't definitely don't you know assign an attachment style to your partner I always recommend that you begin with yourself first actually that's something I noticed earlier in the conversation uh, with Dr. Gina I, I asked you a question about something and then you turned it around about working on yourself and I meant to say to Gina I'm like yeah these are like the dream clients for therapists who are like here's what I'm struggling with here's what I can do about it here's what I'm thinking rather than all my problems come from external sources it's his fault and her fault and their fault and that's not to say that other people don't adversely, you know, affect your life or affect, you know, the way you, you feel or the way you behave or even the way you think to some degree, but you do have some agency. I've, I, I've found recently I've started to journal again, and that's given me an opportunity to reflect on my part in how I'm feeling or how I'm interpreting things, which has been really, really helpful. It's kind of like, okay, what's the problem? But like, when I reread the question, it's like, well, what am I doing or how am I responding to it? And what's my role in this? And 
because right now we have an opportunity to talk about my own role in things, I want to apologize to you because I think at the beginning or rather during this conversation, I alluded to the fact that we've been together for so long. And I think in an attempt to be funny, didn't realize that I actually made you feel bad when there is nothing in the world that I want more than to spend another 60 years of my life with you. And I'm using this platform right here, <laughs> this podcast, to apologize to you for coming across that way. Because I think in an attempt to be fun, in, in an effort to be funny, um, in the moment, I made it out like it's been such a long time when there's nothing that I want more than to have more time with you. I feel the same way. You don't have to apologize, honestly, <laughs> for reals. I mean, the therapist is gone now, so. <laughs> it doesn't matter about the therapist. It's, it's how I feel. It's taking a page out of Dr. DiGiulio's book. I, I'm, you know, being vulnerable, being um, real, being honest with yourself and not trying to perform for anybody else. And that's what I'm doing right here, a little impromptu, which is just saying to you, that's what I want. So I, I'm sorry for coming across that way. I'm not I'm not even sure you did. And you don't have to say sorry. But thank you. It, it's interesting. You know, one thing um, that I think of when I look through the attachment styles and my notes is that uh, I do know that we're, we're both really open to being um, reliant on one another for different things. Um, I don't feel smothered. I feel like you really want to be close. I always appreciate that I don't ever feel like I have to fight for you to be vulnerable. I think sometimes you maybe don't have your words in the way that I expect you to, but that comes back to my own expectations. Oh man, we could really delve into this. You know, I know we've been delving into it for a while now, but I mean, just in this conversation. But yes, yeah, sometimes I'm like, well, why don't you say these words this way? But I realize that I'm projecting my expectations and the fact that you know I'm a really verbal person. I never stop talking. I like to read. Uh, whereas you're a little bit more thoughtful with the things you say. No, I mean, it's a... I, I try and be, I want to be more like you. When Dr. Gina was telling us about the different attachment styles, I found it really interesting that you have so many, like the thrill seeker, the the sometimes enjoying the adrenaline that it comes. Are you going to make the flight? Are you going to make your speech? You're going to get on stage. That's when she was talking about like ADHD. But for yeah. me, I am the, I am very much the opposite. Like mm -hmm. if I have a presentation, it's like, I need to know three days in advance <laughs> what I'm talking about. But you thrive under those circumstances. Yeah, and it can drive people up the wall. I mean, Kelly, who is my brand manager <laughs> and also produces this podcast, who will, who will be listening, uh, you know, sh she wants she likes things done ahead of time, and I like to do things right when they have to be Give done. Give a shout out to Kelly there yeah, for being on top of things. Yeah, shout out to Kelly for making sure I actually get things done. Uh, but also little things. When I when I was traveling a lot, I remember you would always ask me questions like, "Oh, when are you going here? When are you going there? Um, what's your plan here?" Or you know, did you pack this? And I'm like, I'm always like, man, I don't know. I'll just buy it if I can't. <laughs> if I forgot it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not so much that as I'm like, it's in the iCal. I trust the iCal. Um, I move from day to day, from moment to moment. Uh, and when you ask questions about things that are going to happen three days away. For me, it feels like it's three months away. I know three <laughs> days from now feels like tomorrow to you. Yeah. But to me, it just feels like it's so far off in the distance. And over the last 20 years, I think we've learned to understand <laughs> one another's approaches. Like I know sometimes I just have to give you an answer because it puts you at ease. <laughs> and I think you know sometimes not to ask me because yeah. I, I'll, I'll find it like, oh, like, I, I don't know if the word's irritating 
as much as um, I find it unnecessary. But then it's it's just not necessary to me. It's necessary to you. Yeah, I mean, but again, for me, going back to the journaling and the entry, it's, it's like when I think about things from that perspective and I think about what Dr. Gina said today, I can put two and two together. Whereas in the moment, when I'm when we're having an argument, a discussion, when I'm out and I'm presented with an opportunity to change my behavior, mm-hmm. use CBT or use any of those techniques, I find it difficult. So having a chance to reflect on it, you know, eventually I, I will get there. So yeah, I think I mean I want to say that I don't know anyone else who's kind of so good at pushing their comfort zone and adjusting their behavior. Like I I, I watch you. And you're one of those people that if I say I like something, even if you're uncomfortable with it, you just, you push through and do it. Like I, I'm thinking about sex. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, <laughs> I am not verbose. I am not very expressive when it comes to... Um, words. Words. And <laughs> as I'm struggling with them right now, but there that's one of the challenges that we had in this relationship is mm-hmm. you want me to express myself a certain way. You know, the Jamaican who just is so over the like top and expressive and, and effusive and effusive and just oh it's like poetry and I'm stumbling over the six words I'm trying to say well, but I do try <laughs> I know you do and you're again you're being too hard on yourself like you're you're still a super articulate person and you're expressive in lots of other ways but I do I have to say and I know we've kind of just started chatting ourselves but we'll just keep going and uh, <laughs> uh, f- for real I find that you are just willing to make shifts and willing to say, oh, that, rather than saying, oh, I'm not like that, or no, I wasn't raised that way, or no, that's not me. You're like, okay, this doesn't, it isn't not aligned with my personal values. So I can try that, right? I can try and do that thing that might feel really good for you, even though I don't feel naturally inclined to do it. And I think that's a really important point when it comes to attachment styles, that they aren't set in stone. And so you don't have to say, oh, but I'm always going to be this way because I'm fearful of being rejected or abandoned and I react by becoming clingy, you can say, okay, I I am fearful of being rejected, which by the way, we all are to some degree, right? We all have a fear of rejection. But here's what I can do about it. Here's how I can think differently. Here's how how I can dig a little deeper. Uh, Here's how I can behave differently. And let's see if some of those fears become assuaged. There, there are three things that I feel like I've, I've learned over the years thinking about these. It, it, number one is that it, it doesn't always happen quickly. Mm-hmm. Number two is that it might be painful, but I always, number three, which is I'm doing this in the hopes, in, in the belief that it will get better. Mm. And it doesn't always mean that the relationship will necessarily get better, but even sometimes the relationship with myself, the understanding um, of myself will get better. And ultimately, that's what I'm hoping for, which is to improve in all aspects of my life, to, 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 li- to live my best life, really. Can I ask you about your journaling? Yeah, of course. Yeah, are you doing that? Like, is it every day? How- no, it started out three or four times a week. Mm-hmm. And I really found that writing things down um, helped ease some of the anxiety and the stress. Um, it gave me a chance to reflect and it's whittled down over the course of, you know, the last month or six weeks that I've been doing it only to once or twice a week. And again, I'm hard on myself for even, you know, I should do it more. But when I reflect back on the entries, which aren't terribly long, I find it very, very helpful. That's cool. So it's, it's, been, it's been good. And hopefully it's the start of a long journey. 
Thank you for sharing that with me and with everyone. So thank you to you for listening. Hope you have a nice long weekend if you're down in the States or wherever you're at. Have a great one. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.